1: Hi, y'all. This is Noah. I'm here with Karen. Hello. And Rich. Hello. And today on Punching Out, we'd like to talk to you about something that we don't often talk about. Some of you will remember that back in September, the island of Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Maria, which leveled a huge percentage of the island's infrastructure really tore to shreds much of the island's antiquated power grid and many of, its, um, many of its water resources and made life extremely difficult for Puerto Ricans and essentially has garnered, well, close to no response from the federal government or from the president. Instead, what we've seen is a steady outflow of stories telling us first how terrible conditions are on the island and now closer to today... Well, the stories have taken a slightly different theme towards how certain sectors of wealthy people are looking to take advantage of uh, the island's current economic climate, which on the one side is abject poverty for actual Puerto Ricans or increased poverty for actual Puerto Ricans, but on the other hand is seen as a golden opportunity for investors and people looking to reshape the island in the economic structure that they see fit.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, a playground. Yep. I mean, for some, it's a it's a playground.
1: It's funny you mention that, Karen, because there's <laughs> an article in the New York Times about a group of generally young uh, libertarian types, tech guys, tech bros, who have come to the island to uh, establish what is called, I believe, a crypto utopia, where they're going to run part of the island off of things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. There's an interesting note where apparently somebody told them that their original name for this effort they were going to make, Puerto Pia, meant Eternal Boy Playground in Latin. It doesn't. They didn't check. But instead now they're calling it Seoul. And apparently, and this is the funniest part, they're now getting in a fight with all of the other American expats who are there to evade income Uh, taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the other expats are going, how dare you come into our community just to not pay money to the federal government? We've been doing this for years. Yeah. Like there's...
2: I actually, I I read the article because you sent me a link to the article. And I don't want to get into cryptocurrencies. Mm. Um, Don't invest
3: in cryptocurrencies. Thank
2: you. So basically these are new... 100 millionaires or billionaires or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, you're mentioning that the expat community that is there is kind of angry at how these guys are coming up and coming in. And they're buying up whole swaths of land in Puerto Mm -hmm. Rico from desperate people who are still trying to recover. And um, but what what made me chuckle in the article is that the expat that they quoted is a freaking hedge fund manager. So we've got actually a hedge fund manager. One of the vilest, most corrupt, jerky, like possible kinds of people saying, these guys are jerks. These guys are like, they're not doing the right thing here. And I'm like, if the hedge fund manager has a problem with the cryptocurrency vultures, then we're, holy cow, Puerto Rico's in trouble.
3: And speaking of hedge funds, before Marie even hit, Puerto Rico was already being raked over the coals. For how, how much do you know the number for the debt? It, oh boy, uh, the, somewhere the in the have?
1: seventy billion dollar, eighty billion dollar range. I yeah, believe. just
3: uh, so the colony of Puerto Rico was effectively mm-hmm. bankrupt as it was, and nobody—not the federal government, not the creditors—were willing to mm-hmm. give a cent in debt relief. And so there was a hope that maybe this disaster would provide the impetus for some sort of relief, and the, the opposite has happened. The The creditors have doubled down on their demands mm-hmm. that Puerto Rico play back every last cent, mm-hmm. uh, they've extracted from it, and then they're using this, the disaster, on top of the, the debt disaster as an opportunity to wipe the island clean. This is the, mm-hmm. the phrase oh, yeah. these, these disaster capitalists like to use, is a, a, a clean slate, a that blank slate. That sounds nothing exactly. like ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Not at all, no.
2: But is it, is it, wasn't it also true that Trump was demanding that people who received aid, mm-hmm. so the little trickle <clears> of aid that was getting in, he was requiring that they sign that they owe a debt now. Like, regular yes. people. Um, like, this um, is... Yeah. Can you, like... I can't articulate how angry I am.
1: I mean, th- the thing you have to understand is that this is a man who, when faced with various choices of what to throw mm-hmm. at a somewhat, perhaps, appreciative audience of Puerto But Reagan, wait,
2: why would you throw anything in the first place? Let's start with that, right? Let's start that's with the first throwing problem. it, people. It was
1: like
3: a rich guy throwing
2: breadcrumbs
1: yeah, on the ground to was, watch starving
3: people dance. Like, it was all that the kind choices, of... He picks
1: the canned chicken, and it is up to the Puerto Ricans who have been hit by a hurricane to please oh tell the pres- president, please don't throw metal cans at us. So
2: is that why he picked up the paper towels?
1: Yes. The paper towels were oh. the second option. That, that he is was exactly going to throw canned
2: chicken, mm-hmm. and they were like, please do not throw canned chicken at this. us. They
1: literally like held up their hands and said, please don't do and this. And
2: were the paper towels supposed to like wipe up the flooding? Like- I
1: have no clue. I just
2: so okay, um, just dab so, up so the this wet. is but this
1: is the kind of mindset that you're dealing with. This is a person, and this is a government I,
2: I want I want let's go back let's go back to that. this is a person actually, mm-hmm. this is a collection of mm-hmm. many people in our government, yes, who have decided that this is okay,
1: yep, they've decided they're not going to be there that they're not going to solve the problem that. You get to figure out how you're gonna make things happen on your own. No,
2: no, no, no. You don't get to figure out how you're gonna make things happen on your own. The people flying in to mm-hmm. Puerto Rico with their cryptocurrency millionaire money or are going debt. to decide. Yeah. Or the people who hold the debt are gonna decide how you're gonna work your way out of it.
1: Right. But as far as the daily life, as far as yeah. you know, if you're, yeah, you're somebody on your who own. lives on the island, you're an architect who, you know, used to get a steady stream of work or something like that. You now, you have no idea who's going to give you, uh, if you're ever going to have power back. Mm -hmm. You have no idea if uh, sometimes if you're going to have running water from day to day. You know, there are still rolling blackouts across the Mm -hmm. island now. And we're on like our third or fourth power company Mm -hmm. that's supposed to be providing and, and restoring the grid. They've basically decided at every turn that not only is it okay, but that it is preferable almost that these efforts fail. You Mm -hmm. look at the companies that they've put in charge. First, they tried uh, with that wonderful Whitefish Energy Company, the Mm -hmm. the two people, one of whom spent his time uh, mostly arguing on Twitter with the mayor of San Juan, which I'm sure is what a CEO of an er energy company does. Um, Then we had the uh, we have this food services company that was one person didn't provide the meals that uh, they were supposed to Mm -hmm. provided meals of subpar quality and then sued the government for calling the company incapable of doing its job. For and this should be emphasized the second time. Yeah. So in every possible service that they could have provided, they have made it clear that they this is beyond low priority. This is
3: negative priority for them. Yeah. They rather. It's an open question whether Trump before Maria even knew that Puerto Rico was a part of the American empire. Uh, But, uh, you know, whether he knew or not is, is irrelevant. Cause like Karen says, this is a systemic issue. Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico is on the periphery of the American economy intentionally. So by design, I said earlier, it's a colony. What I mean by that is that the United States extracts resources, extracts labor from it. And even before Maria was not delivering uh, any kind of support in return to Puerto Rico, this is the reason why the, island was trapped in kind of endemic structural Mm -hmm. poverty and then maria in the aftermath is just giving more free reign to these colonists to intensify their colonization of uh, of this island dominion of the united states Uh, Mm -hmm. and because it's on the periphery because trump and number of americans don't even know it's part of the united states it's very easy for them not to care
2: yeah i think what's happening in Uh, I don't have a personal relationship to anybody in Puerto Rico. So I'm saying this as an observer who maybe doesn't, shouldn't be commenting on it. It is unprecedentedly bad in my lifetime how this response is happening. Uh, But it also, there are a number of disturbing parallels for how. for how the U.S. government and business interests are undermining people's daily lives in real material ways. Um, So I don't, I want to, I want us to be able to talk a little bit about how, what those parallels are, both because uh, we're, we're, we're just seeing the worst of it in Puerto Rico. So mm-hmm. everything that we can find places in the United States where they're doing similar things, mm-hmm. but they're doing all of it all at the same time in Puerto Rico. Yep. And I want to yep. keep that in mind as we sort of shift the conversation mm-hmm. that we're not really moving away from Puerto Rico. We're going to describe a few things um, that have happened in the U.S. that mirror or, or predate or coincide with, or were practice efforts, pilot projects for everything that's happening in Puerto Rico now.
1: It's it's weird that you mentioned that, because as somebody with a close personal relationship to Puerto Rico, I almost feel like it went the other way. I almost feel like Puerto Rico right now is the pilot project yeah. um, for what's coming next for the rest of the United States. They're figuring mm-hmm. that um, with... This disaster allowing investors to still, you know, fly in and, and eat their decadent meals at rich hotels and talk mm-hmm. about, you know, do you want this slice or do you want that slice of the island? With people like uh, Elon Musk and, and people like that saying they're going to provide certain services, they're going to replace certain services. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that that's – they they are essentially testing the waters to see if they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. And so far they have absolutely 100% gotten away with it because if you don't talk to people on the island, you have no idea what the effects are. There's maybe one story every other week because now every newsroom has turned away from it. Mm -hmm. It's all bleak and depressing and they don't want to hear about it and there's no attempt to investigate other than the occasional article saying hey this is really dangerous and we should maybe stop it.
2: Yeah. So do you have family in Puerto Rico? Oh,
1: absolutely. Most yeah. of my immediate family lives there and they've been I've been getting information from them and it uh my family is very much the, the, the type that doesn't want to admit when things are difficult. It's not a stick your head in the sand kind of thing, but they don't want to admit it because they don't want me to worry. Mm-hmm. They, they go, you've got your own problems. You've got your own things to worry about. And I'm going, okay, but if you don't tell me, I'm going to invent a more nightmarish scenario <laughs> in uh-huh. my head. And I have found that I cannot do that in this case because the nightmare is mm-hmm. extremely real. Mm-hmm. There actually are people saying, we're going to hand over your hometown to these twenty-eight-year-old uh, Silicon Valley types yeah. who do everything via some dark website, we're going to hand over the electricity of the island to some guy who wants to put his car in space. We're going to hand <laughs> over the the future of your island's yeah. tiny technology market to a company that you know folds over like like a piece of crepe paper. Every time they're told, hey, we'll censor you if you disagree ever again Mm -hmm. publicly with our human rights records, Um, it's incredibly brutal and and I think painful for Puerto Rican stateside to see that. And I think they realize, most of them, that this is not getting any coverage. This Mm -hmm. is no longer being treated as something that's important because – News cycle, news cycle, um, new cycle,
2: divert attention with any kind. You know, Trump diverting attention mm-hmm. from what he's really doing with ridiculous things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with North Korea. P- choo- choose your reason why mm-hmm. the major media isn't paying attention. Puerto um, so Rico it, isn't
3: a missing blonde or a missing airplane. Doesn't uh, fit that niche. Basically,
2: not a miss, not a missing blonde or a missing airplane. Those are the. That's Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: that's accurate though. Yeah, it is.
2: Um, I, so when I, the first thing I was thinking of as I was laying out this sort of we can see this happening mm-hmm. in mainland U.S, we, what we see happening, but all at once in Puerto Rico, was just a very simple: Detroit still doesn't have lead-free water.: So I'm sorry, Flint. Our producer just just looked at me and, and motions at Flint 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 Michigan. I mean, yes, are, uh, probably true for Detroit
1: as well. There are a ton of uh, yeah, places probably. in the U.S. that have dangerous. Lead yeah, you, you want to talk about yeah. a
3: place that where public services have been absolutely left behind mm-hmm. by the market. You know, Detroit is the ground zero of this whole project.
2: Yeah, I think anybody That's, who's over, I'm gonna uh, correct me, but I'm guessing anybody who's over 25 or th- anybody who's over 30 years old. Okay, I am well over 30 years old thinks that the process in the American milieu is that a terrible wrong is exposed in the news media and then people talk about it and then it gets fixed. And in fact, the media attention is the mechanism by which powers that be are forced to um, fix it. So, what? I mean, you guys are younger than I am, how does that – does that sound like that's how things work anymore at all? It's uh, not I mean, how no, it works. You're,
3: you're yeah. right. It happened yeah. once with Watergate, and they've been uh, and, sailing that ship yeah. ever since. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Journalism as a profession has basically just they – they're so proud of themselves for having taken down one president that they have not yeah.
2: stopped. Well, it's not – and it's not even – I would say even when they do the stories, mm-hmm. I mean – I saw it on my Facebook feed. Yeah. Flint, Michigan has been th- over three years, still no clean water. Um, I'm sorry. I'm di- If this is too much of a diversion, that's okay. Go ahead. Screlly is going to jail, but the medication that he raised fi- the price of 500,000% is still 500,000%. Five. Sorry, 5,000%. 5, 5, yeah. m- high. It's still that high cost. <laughs>
1: because he's the scapegoat. If you send the person that everybody hates to jail, you can keep the banal... Thing of having the price be yeah. five thousand percent higher.
2: So, so getting back to Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. um, I I think when we talked about doing this show, so it's not exactly related to work, but we're punching out now on, against capitalism. Just st- I, I would argue up. it is
3: related to work because this is a project uh, yeah. to destroy worker power. Yeah, you know, well, that, that's all the, neo- all the liberal, that's power big power, part, of, big part of what the neoliberal project yeah. is. So I, this is yeah. certainly on, on theme.
2: So, um, so Rich, you had the idea about talking about. Crisis capitalism—I don't know if that's the right term—but there, there's, there is this moment when crises happen that is seen as an opportunity by capitalists. And let me just remind people that the word, and the word capitalist, is a—it's a bunch of people capitalizing on, in this case, human suffering. Mm-hmm. So, cap, capitalists—people who are willing to capitalize on. Any opportunity to build their profit. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, can one of you guys explain crisis capitalism or disaster capitalism when we get back?
3: Absolutely.
0: You're listening to Punching
2: Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. So
3: uh, we're we're talking about the disaster of of Hurricane Maria in in Puerto Rico, uh, in large part because we've seen this before. We've seen these kinds of instances where capitalists take advantage of natural disasters, or, of, or oftentimes man-made disasters, or you know, if, if there's you know a fine line between the two, anyway. In that's order a, to, my,
2: that's a really good point, Rich. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: in order to uh, impose their own uh, vision of uh, the economic future on uh, these places struck by disaster. Uh, so actually, the framework by which I think all of us are thinking about uh, what happened in Puerto Rico is Naomi Klein's book Shock Doctrine, where she introduces this idea of disaster capitalism. Uh, It's a form of capitalism that attempts to impose uh, its own institutions and its own ideas of how the the world should be governed uh, on on areas of the world that have been afflicted by disasters. So what happens in these places is uh, the disasters, they destroy infrastructure, uh, they undermine public institutions, people are scared, people are afraid, uh, they're anxious, uh, and these create what Klein calls zones of uh, exception. It's a place where Uh, Someone with uh, a full-fledged project to privatize uh, public institutions and replace them with something quote-unquote better can impose their will on these situations. A classic example, unfortunately, of where this happened was New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina. And we want to be clear, this is not an accident. This is an ideological project. It goes back a generation and a nice illustration of uh, the extent of this ideological project uh, was an op-ed David Brooks wrote in the New York Times on September 8, 2005. If you're not familiar with the timeline, Katrina struck New Orleans on August twenty eighth to the 29th, 2005. So a little more than a week later, this is what David Brooks had to say in the pages of the New York Times. Quote, As a colleague of mine says, every crisis is an opportunity. And sure enough, Hurricane Katrina has given us an amazing chance to do something serious about urban poverty. That's because Katrina was a natural disaster that interrupted a social disaster. It separated tens of thousands of poor people from the rundown, isolated neighborhoods in which they were trapped. It disrupted patterns that led one generation to follow another into poverty. Here's where it gets good. As if it wasn't great Wait, enough. That's there. where it's it coming <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say it has created oh, as man. close to a blank slate as we get in human affairs, and you can see the you can, the triumphalism, like the moment, the opportunity Brooks sees here, and has given us a chance to rebuild a city that wasn't working. We need to be realistic about how much we can actually change human behavior, but it would be a double tragedy if we didn't take advantage of these unique circumstances to do something that could serve as a spur to anti-poverty programs nationwide. So he's looking at this disaster in New Orleans as an opportunity to uh, serve as a bellwether for a nationwide project. You know, the disaster that killed more than a thousand people, that displaced yeah. hundreds of thousands of people, is for this ghoulish monster writing for the New York Times, a great opportunity to impose his ideology. And so he, here's the, the, the kicker, his conclusion the only chance we have to break the cycle of poverty is to integrate people who lack middle class skills into neighborhoods with people who possess (laughs) these skills and who insist on certain standards of behavior. And that really is the crux of it. Yeah, It's an anti-poor project, it's an anti-working people project, and it's an anti-people of color project. It's an uh, attempt to replace their power with middle class upper class white people oh my god yeah, the, the reason the reason people are poor is they won't pull their pants up
2: well they don't that, have the right values I guess
1: yeah. how dare they they don't listen to the right music and they don't you know they don't they don't drive the cars I like
3: it's their fault they're poor and yeah. this is, the hurricane you know, was god's just judgment on their their poor life decisions this It could is, not get more just
2: i, I can't it's what possible response can we have to that? I mean, you, you how can. does one... You can only make that kind of a statement from a... First of all, from a position of material comfort. Obviously, I cannot believe that someone would suggest that poverty is the result of a lack of middle... I mean, I can believe it, but still, like a lack of middle-class values. Um, they're really... So what ended up happening, like this was, what you said, about a week after the hurricane hit. Yep. People, f- people died, number one. People died. So let's New Orleans not... was
3: still a no-go zone at this point. It was still right. flooded. It was right. still difficult to get access to. There
2: were people faced with white sheriffs with guns trying mm-hmm. to leave the city, uh, confronted by suburban, racist, white people who shot at them trying to escape the disaster. 100,000 African-Americans never returned to New Orleans. They were displaced. The, don't assume that 100,000 African-Americans just decided they liked where they moved better. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, and the, and And so actually, the vultures... Did in fact descend? Oh yeah! Can you talk I mean, about some of the ways in which they descended, or do you want to stay with David Brooks and just like pound on him <laughs> for a while longer? I mean, we, we, could, we
3: could just have a show dedicated to pounding on David Brooks. For, that that should for eventually a, happen. I do yeah, just with a, that. just a David Brooks hour yeah. one, you know, once once a month to clear the yeah, clearly wow. clear the sinuses of. of
2: I mean, our just movement. and like and oh, listeners for <laughs> know what I want. <laughs> Necessary so, palliative. I know rest what of us. I wanted to say. So. We cannot, we cannot any longer talk about concentrations of poverty without talking about concentrations of wealth. Yeah, And mm-hmm. so that, that concept is something that I learned from the Black Lives Matter movement in Syracuse. They put out a statement about their electoral strategy. And that is a phrase that really struck me when I read it. We cannot ever talk about Large concentrations of poverty without also talking about large concentrations of wealth because the two are intimately linked and in the direction of wealthy people are picking over the bones and creating poverty. And so, so given that so I'm just for our listeners I want you to know that anytime you enter a conversation that is just about the problem of large concentrations of poverty if here's a tip if they're not mentioning The problem of large concentrations of wealth, they're missing the mark. They're not serious. So now we're talking about crisis capitalism, and they're having the exact opposite response. What they're actually doing is saying, let's turn this city, let's turn this island over to capitalists.
1: Well, so, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong. I I think I just remember this, but maybe I'm remembering wrong. Isn't the major case in the shock doctrine... Post Soviet Union Russia. Oh yeah, isn't that the major thing that she
3: talks about? The the book covers. You know, uh, it starts basically with Salvador Allende's Chile, Chile, right? And you know, the coup there and how that was kind of the original zone of exception where you could impose these uh, these vicious privatization programs on uh, on Milton sources of Friedman's public power. Dreamland. Milton Friedman's Dreamland, the Chicago School running wild. Um,
2: what happened in New Orleans? I mean, I only know part of the picture, but I know that housing was leveled and then never rebuilt. The mixed-use housing that that is mentioned was that in this quote?
3: That was no. I, oh, I'll get to, get to that. Sorry, get to that.
2: Let's move on. Then, All right. Rich, so let's let me... let's. All right.
3: So this is this is David Brooks laying what is clearly the ideological groundwork for what's going to happen in New Orleans. He's justifying. Uh, to the audience of good upper-class, upper-middle-class liberals that uh, this is a great great opportunity to remake New Orleans in the image of capital. Um, So 10 years after Katrina, in August 2015, the New York Times wrote a uh, a 10 years after Katrina article, which I think every sort of news outlet in the country did their own version of. Um, And the New York Times version was predictably fairly triumphalist about uh, the achievements of uh, disaster capitalism in, in New Orleans. So it, it says, empowered by billions of federal dollars and big ideas of eager policy planners, the school system underwent an extensive overhaul. The old Art Deco charity hospital was supplanted by a state-of-the-art medical complex and big public housing projects at once beloved and notorious were raised and replaced by mixed income communities with housing vouchers. So let's Kind of read between the lines here at what the New York Times is actually saying. Uh, But the school system underwent an extensive overhaul. The public school system was decimated and replaced by charter schools. The Art Deco Charity Hospital was replaced by a state-of-the-art medical complex. The public hospital was shut down and its patients sent to a private hospital that had been erected in its place. And then the last one, the big public housing projects. This is where most low-income people in New Orleans could afford to live they're raised and replaced by mixed-income communities, so the public housing in New Orleans was destroyed. Uh, this was something. This was actually a plan going back before Katrina. Katrina was their opportunity to put it in place without resistance and replaced by uh, again private developers uh, with really inadequate uh, options for residents to affordably live in New Orleans again. So, you know, when when Karen said a hundred thousand people of color. Have never returned to New Orleans. again, it's not by choice. This is why. There's not housing for them by design. Mm-hmm. And that's about the same number of Puerto Ricans who are expected to have left the
1: island, I think, or were expected to have left the island mm-hmm. uh, within a year of Maria. Mm-hmm. So it's that 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 kind of number keeps cropping up again mm-hmm. and again. And when you hear things like Blank Slate or when we talked about, you know, this is a golden opportunity to wipe clean the island. There's that imagery always mm-hmm. of there's something wrong with the place as it
3: now stands. It's dirty. Yeah. It's yeah. uh, it's mis- it's dysfunctional. It's full of poor people. It's full of people of color. These are mm-hmm. undesirables. As uh, if
2: they're the ones who are the dysfunction. They're the, the source yeah, of the they're, dysfunction.
3: They're, they're, they're being held responsible for... Uh, they're treated the like structures germs. Structures of capitalism.
1: They're, they're treated like germs, and yeah. you're and you're coming in to to clean it up with your paper towel of shiny glass right. and steel.
3: Well, good news, guys. New Orleans is great now. It is in a city long marinated in fatalism. The article oh, continues. Boy. Optimists are now in the ascendance. They <laughs> promise that an influx of bright newcomers, a burst of entrepreneurial verb. Verve, excuse me, and a new spirit of civic engagement have primed the city for an era of greatness. So, who do you think these people? What, bright, do, what do they bright, look I, like? Is
2: bright mean white? I think bright new it clearly
3: means white. Yeah, a burst of entrepreneurial verve. Said. This is not something yeah. low-income people of color uh, clearly had before, but now that they've been wiped clean and mm-hmm. displaced, uh, this is the new, or- the new New Orleans. Yeah, the New Orleans for. Uh, you know, middle class folk, the people kinder, with middle class gentler, behavior. Whiter New Orleans. I want to know where
2: these people are working. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you, uh, but that's, okay, that's a side note.
1: Rich, you brought up one 10th anniversary response to Katrina. And I have to say, I don't think that's the one most people are going to remember if they remember one 10th anniversary <laughs> response. <laughs> because uh, Kristen, I want to say it was Kristen McQuarrie. Let me check really quickly. Yes. Yep. Of the Chicago Tribune had an incredible uh, response to it, and it begins like this. A real Pulitzer nominee, if I remember oh, right. Oh, boy. This was... This
2: is, a ten, uh, this is 10 years after Katrina? 10 she years after Katrina. She has this to say? Okay.
1: Yep. Envy isn't a rational response to the upcoming 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Oh my God. I don't know about you, but I'm hooked already. I want to read That's the her rest opener? The... Yep. That's, that's her hook. That's what she went with. That's her first line. That's how she grabs you, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Envy.
1: But with August 29th fast approaching and New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu making media rounds, including at the Tribune editorial board, I find myself wishing for a storm in Chicago, an unpredictable, haughty, devastating swirl of fury, a dramatic levee break, geysers bursting through manhole covers, a sleeping city forced onto the rooftops. She's literally asking for a hurricane to hit Chicago. I mean, she is going to get into the metaphor later and what she means by this, but she opens with the image of Chicago being slaughtered by a hurricane.
2: Happy tenth anniversary of a terrible slaughter I, of people. I don't even know. Um, where let's to begin have another with this. one.
3: And let, let's be clear: what she, what, what she, and David Brooks and all of them mean by this is this disaster is an opportunity to do away with democratic processes, mm-hmm. to do away with. The, the people who are mucking up these messy democratic processes and impose uh, a tyrannical regime, uh, which just happens to be the right way the world should be organized, according to uh, people who hold extraordinary amounts of capital.
1: And and the wonderful part is that she's not going to let you think that this is not the case. <clears throat> she uh, enumerates the ways in which Katrina freed up the government of New Orleans, and she specifically goes after an underperforming public school system saw a complete makeover. A new school chief, Paul Vallis, who, by the way, was previously CEO of Chicago Public Schools, CEO, not superintendent, designed the school system with the flexibility of an entrepreneur. No restrictive mandates from the city or the state. No demands from teacher unions to abide. Instead, he created the nation's first free market education system. That's she's not even giving you the possibility, the benefit of the doubt. You can't even give her that. She tells you straight out what she wants.
2: Can we um can we come up can we coin a new term and instead of calling them entrepreneurs, can we call them entre
1: That's a good one. <laughs> I would just call them interlopers and pretend that's how it was pronounced, but you know.
2: You remember like how long ago was this article? When was the tenure? Yeah, twenty fifteen.
1: Twenty fifteen, yeah. So
2: just so like here we are in twenty eighteen and um Just in the last three years, Mm -hmm. I think people are finally sick to death of the word entrepreneur. And I don't think anybody buys it anymore, that these people are geniuses who are sparkling saviors of anybody.
3: See the Punching Out episode, The Cult of the Entrepreneur, for more. Very well done, Rich. And, but, I mean, you say that, but on the other
1: hand, you, you try going after Elon Musk in any public space and you will instantly have people jumping down your throat yeah. because how dare you? He's so smart. He designs public transportation. He or- put that funny thing into space. Wasn't that yeah. funny? He wants to live on Mars. What an amazing man.
2: This is so – I'm sorry. <laughs> this is like – and now I'm back to the cryptocurrency pirates mm-hmm. in, in, in Puerto Rico. Like the, the arrogance of these people – the, first of all, like the only reason they think that they can accomplish anything is because they they are surrounded by sycophants that they pay to tell them that they're amazing. Um, but the the real another problem behind that is they don't care if they fail because they're not the ones hurting.
1: Number one and number two because they put their finger on the scale because not to harp on Puerto Rico yet again, mm-hmm. but well, that even, is what we're here to talk about. Yes, fair. Too hard on Puerto Rico yet again. Too hard on Puerto Rico yet again. I like it. Um, Even before Hurricane Maria hit, the island was already considered open for business yet again because uh, successive governments had had to push through. I want to emphasize this wasn't a thing anybody on the island wanted. Neither of the major parties was Mm -hmm. willing to go near this for most of my life there because it was politically toxic. Mm -hmm. It was a third rail. But they were eventually forced to push through what are euphemistically called labor reforms, which Mm -hmm. really means that workers lost out on bonuses, lost out on rights to organize, lost out on uh, fair wages. Basically, there's so
2: much in debt because of capitalizing capitalists Mm -hmm. that they're forced to accept sort of austerity measures and a lack of rights. Like give up your rights as workers um, in order to please these people who already have enough money to live on for the rest of their lives without ever having lift a finger, but insist on continually uh, upping their profits. And so the same thing happened in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but they got bailed out, Yep. right? So the capitalists in the U.S., after the 2007 economic collapse, got bailed out of their complete and utter reckless gambling failures. Mm -hmm. And... But in Puerto Rico, they're not bailed out, even though it wouldn't take very much to bail them out, actually. Yeah. So instead, they're forced under the, the yoke of these austerity measures and loss of their rights. Um, and that was before the hurricane.
1: Yep. And, and it's interesting you mentioned the bailout because in that case, the main reason that crisis was, went as deep as it went was because a couple companies demanded their every cent of their money back. Yeah. In Puerto Rico, you have the same problem where there's essentially a standoff because a couple creditors won't even visit. They won't even attend proceedings. They'll say, "Nope, give me my money or I'm not doing anything. Even when other creditors are willing to kind of extend a little bit or or maybe Mm -hmm. weaken some of their demands, if one or two guys don't come to the table and they are guys, then it's going nowhere.
2: Yeah. Okay, so back to the, your article in Chicago. This, yes. So so this is the dream that mm-hmm. she's she's having sort of a a wet dream of envy for Hurricane Katrina. Literally.
1: What else does she say? Yeah. Well, then the the interesting thing I love here is because she spends an entire paragraph on the school system. So clearly this is a bother for her, you mm-hmm. know? This is this is important to her. But then she says Hurricane Katrina gave a great American city a rebirth. And after careful study of the levee's it turns out the devastation was not born of natural disaster. It was man-made. For those of you who don't know, she's referring to the fact that after Katrina, the levees in New Orleans were studied. And as everyone knew already, if you knew anything about them, they were broken down. They As, were in, as
3: people in the neighborhoods right, knew, the levees were not in good shape. They were in complete nobody, nobody cared.
1: And nobody mm. cared. But... Of course, what she's, and, and, and then she has to bring in this line. The same could be said in Chicago, which is not a city that gets hurricanes
2: or levees. It has
1: levees. Le- <laughs> so obviously, she's trying to turn Chicago into the, the same way that people do constantly turn it into a city, uh, an example for bad governance, because how dare it uh, have. Any kind of democratic control? How dare its local politicians exert any measure of influence? Okay, How wait. dare its school system or its public utilities exist
3: so, and have union workers working them? Exactly. God forbid.
2: So, so what she's saying is like, it turns out that the problems in New Orleans were caused were man-made problems because the levees weren't in good shape, um, and and this is her dramatic, poetic, and in Chicago. It turns out the problems are man-made too. <laughs> yes, and what she means is there's poor people.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, like that. And and let's reiterate the point. What does a better, good government New Orleans look like? It's whiter, it's more affluent, it's more friendly to tourists. Uh, it's it's not a local place for local people anymore by design. Yeah, it's not and, a city. It's, it's a giant tourist. It's, trap. Yeah, and that's that's what sh- that's what that's what they imagine for for Chicago. That's what they imagine for every every one of these places is uh content uh, little playgrounds for uh for themselves C-civilized to go you know people? enjoy for civilized white people to enjoy their leisure time without being hassled by uh the problems that they've created.
1: Mm. I, I forgot that this part was in here, but this is particularly odious. She says that's why I find myself praying for a real storm. It's why I can relate metaphorically. Thank God she added that to the residents of New Orleans climbing onto their rooftops and begging for help and waving their arms and lurching toward rescue oh helicopters. This is a newspaper columnist in the second largest city in America, comparing herself to people who were three inches from drowning.
2: She can relate.
1: And she's thrilled about it. She's like, I, yeah. this, she's- this would be amazing. She's, she's hyperactive about it. She's, she's brimming with energy about being in that situation.
2: You guys can't say this, but I can. She's got a hard on for disaster capitalism.
1: Fair enough. Sure. And the last thing I want to say about this article is, so she's talking about how in the aftermath of Katrina, this guy came from Chicago public schools to New Orleans and designed the nation's, and I quote again, first free market education system. She's talking about charter schools. And if you don't think that this sounds scary enough, if you think that this is over or that this is a thing of the past, the Secretary of Education of Puerto Rico, there's that place again, specifically said that she's looking at New Orleans after Katrina as a model for how to redo public education in Puerto Rico. We're gonna talk more about that and more about charter schools in general after the break.
2: Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that
1: dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on
2: WAYO-LP-FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. We're back. I'm Karen, and I'm here with Noah and Rich. And we're talking about Puerto Rico. We're talking about disaster capitalism And I've been chomping at the bit to talk about charter schools. So we're talking about charter schools because this is one of the amazing innovations, quote unquote. That's not an actual direct quote, but that's how a lot of uh, capitalists talk about um, charter schools in New Orleans. We heard a quote from a woman who's desperately yearning for a storm to destroy Chicago so that they can have charter schools. And we know that charter schools are licking their lips uh, just looking at Puerto Rico. Um, to move in and capitalize like capitalists do. So I want to talk about charter schools. I may not be able to give the best explanation, but there are some key points that have been sort of a bee in my bonnet lately about charter schools. So... Effort And it's especially poignant because we we record this show ahead of time, before the air date, and we are just coming off the Betsy DeVos interview with 60 Minutes, where she tried to talk about how great charter schools is, and she has no freaking idea what she's talking about. So the effort, at the end of the day, the effort to put charter schools in place is about accessing public money, that heretofore has been inaccessible to profit mongers. Yep. Bottom line. Yep. So, And the, the way that they do this is they start their own schools and they siphon off public money that normally goes to the public schools and they put it into this school endeavor that somehow at the end of the day makes a profit for them. That's why they're in it. They're not in it because they're incredibly dedicated to children's education. They are often, much like Betsy DeVos, a bunch of rich people who suddenly have a sudden interest in education because there's this charter school mechanism through which they can make more profit. And that's that's I don't like using the phrase taxpayer money. That's public money that we all put in that they now get their hands on. And in education, it doesn't make sense to turn a profit from educating children it just it why would you need to you can pay salaries you pay for building maintenance you buy school lunches like there are things you spend money on to have children educated it's an investment for the future you don't need to turn a profit on that and sorry go ahead go ahead no no
1: i was going to say that um the uh, that that's that entrepreneurial mindset that they've been talking about. What if you did all of those things, but also made somebody rich in yeah. the process? It's
2: like it's like it's like the it's like private prisons. It is, and it's also it's also like healthcare. Like who on earth would need to make money off of sick people? Who would need to make money off of children's education? And are those the people? So, like, we talk about profit being very motivating, right, in the mythos of the U.S. Why would you want somebody in charge of your children who is only motivated to turn a profit? That's disgusting. Okay, so, well, but... Like,
3: the, the rhetorical trick is uh, that public goods are, are chock full of waste, You know, teachers are making Mm -hmm. too much money. Mm -hmm. Administrators are making too much money. Why Uh, can't I make money? You know, and they're basically they're putting they're putting money in these schools. The outcomes aren't changing. So we have to try something different. But, you know, again, it gets to your point. These are public goods, Uh, education, healthcare, It's, you know, housing, et cetera. They belong to the public. Uh, We need to start thinking of profit itself as the ultimate waste. Money that's taken out of our pockets sent up the ladder and never seen again. Yeah. And that's what's happening with charter schools. Yeah.
2: It's money that could have been spent on more education resources. Exactly. Just mm-hmm. like in healthcare, the profit that they skim off the top could have paid somebody's hospital bill. But here are the secret places. I, there's a few, I think, secret places in charter schools where, um, the, so the the empirical evidence is incredibly mixed, but mostly favors the idea that actually charter schools are not doing a better job of educating children. That's absolutely yeah, absolutely yeah. correct. At, and, at best, they're doing the same job. Yeah, at best. Um, but they're actually, they take money out of a public school. They often cherry-pick the students that go to the charter schools. Yeah, that, so that, that, that's that, an
3: important point. Yeah. So they, the, they pick their students and their money.
2: Yeah, and when they don't actively pick their students they subtly discourage kids with disabilities from continuing to attend the school. So if there are children who are struggling, if there are children who've been through traumatic events, if there are children with disabilities the charter and they end up in a charter school, they often don't stay in a charter school. And the school will actually use, speaking of prisons, they'll use discipline mm-hmm. to break the wills of the families and get them to quit the school. Because they can't technically kick them out, but they don't want them on their rolls. So what actually happens is that we're children are meat. They're meat. They are. They're, they're, the educational outcomes are not attended to. One of the things that they love about charter schools and that you're a Chicago woman who was basically having a wet dream about a disaster hitting Chicago and killing a lot of people. What they like is that um, the charter schools do not have the same level of accountability and they do not have to have unionized teachers. Um, And so actually nobody's looking. A lot of the charter schools fail mid-year. And the kids have to find another place to go to school. But here's the thing that gets me. Pay attention to the buildings that charter schools use for their schools. Because I think what you will find is that the buildings are owned by friends of the profit mongers who started the school. So it's a cabal, really. Um, And they're charging higher-than-market-value rents to house the charter school. So this is a scam that helps your friend take taxpayer money for a building that may have sat empty, otherwise, and there, that why would you skim off that money? Like, why would we allow that kind of thing to happen with our public money that really should be going to the education of kids? So when they, they when they point to the failures of public education like Betsy DeVos tried to do, she's like, well, public schools are failing. Why are they failing, Betsy? Oh, right. They're underfunded. Like Rochester school system, underfunded, millions of dollars a year, 10 12 years ago, we had a state court decision that said you're underfunding urban schools, pay them back. 10 years later, 11 years later, 12 haven't paid it back. We, we purposely undermine public education in order to create the conditions in which vultures can come in and skim money off for their freaking pockets. And a lot of these, here's the thing a lot of these people are already rich. How mm-hmm. much money do you need? It's thing. just a big F you. You're just hoarding. You're hoarding money. We need a reality show called Hoarders that looks at the money that rich people are hoarding and not the woman in the trailer park because when she collects the cat food tins in her back bedroom, she's not hurting anybody.
1: Well, so. it, it it once again gets to the fact that uh, you're you're talking about the ways in which they sort of do end runs around things like occupancy laws and and about uh, what what market value rent is. And one of the big points that uh, has to be made about charter schools, you mentioned at the beginning of um, your discussion that you might not be able to give the best definition of them. There is no single definition of them, mm-hmm. and that's by design. Mm-hmm. They're intended to be this amorphous model of education, such that if you complain about this charter school, or you complain about that model of charter schools. They can always go, "Oh no, but that's you know not all charter schools, like not all men or ah. not all white people, or right, not yeah, all
3: rich people. Families and students not are consumers, police. and they get to choose their exactly. schools." Just like they buy their shampoo or their appliances. FYI,
2: not... as somebody who grew up in a rural area, this cracks me up. There's no school choice in a rural area. There's one school, maybe a second Catholic school to go to. Yeah, like what? The, you're not going to open up five charter schools in Dansville, New York, and then provide a choice to people. So we're really only talking about certain people getting a choice,
3: right? In the first place. Yeah, and even then, I mean, it, it's not a choice. It's not a choice. Yeah these these schools don't provide the services they say they do mm-hmm. by design because they're skimming.
2: Right? They're taking money
3: out of their pocket out of the, the pockets the of only, the, the people they're serving or supposed to be serving. The, the only good charter
1: schools in the sense of at least they provide the educational outcomes and even then they're mostly providing them because they are in areas where good public schools already exist, so they have to compete mm. with them.
3: The
1: the, on, the few ones that where that has been the case is where an underserved community a town that needs its own school or would like its own school puts together some kind of town first effort. There's a couple of schools in like Massachusetts mm. that have done that where the town comes up with the idea and establishes it and then creates the school. But if it's been done by any kind of private institution, especially by one of these school networks now, which are like the hospital groups of education, forget about it. They're they're They're
2: chain schools.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what they are. In some cases, they're literally chain schools. Some charter schools have literally defined themselves as taking the McDonald's approach to education. Uh. (laughs) That no matter which school you go into, no matter what teacher you get for a certain grade, they're going to be doing the same thing. And might I mention, I just mentioned teachers, that they're also horrible places to work in. There's no accountability for administrators. There's no union presence. Wages are lower. Wages are lower. Turnover is through the roof. In a lot of our current problem, not, not that teaching in the U.S. is an, in, an incredibly great or uh, remunerative profession from the purely economic point of view, but teaching at charter schools is kind of particularly bad. It, mm. It's recognized as being particularly bad on every metric.
2: Mm. And it's, there are some charter schools movements that I think have tried to subvert the intent of the charter school and are wanting to provide a local education to kids in the neighborhood um, that, that undermines capitalism in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think those are few and far between, and their effort, that's not the point of the charter school movement. Right. Those kinds of schools are purposely trying to subvert a bad situation yes. um, with the charter school picture.
1: It's especially painful to hear about kids with disabilities being mistreated. It's not the first time I've heard about it, but one of the reasons that it's it's particularly hard to hear is that one of the reasons, one of the ways that charter schools were sold – to public school teachers, to the American Federation of Teachers, mm. specifically, was as a chance to build a school within a school, as a chance mm-hmm. to take part of a space that was already being used for public education, divide it up, and use that for kids who were struggling, for kids with learning disabilities, for kids who had special needs that a regular school couldn't attend to. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the ways in which charter schools gained currency in the, edu- in, the mar- in the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. because some teachers obviously felt in their hearts, this might be a good thing to have a place where we can work with these kids in the ways that they need. Right. And then as soon as they became real, as soon as they got out there in the world, they instantly became schools for division and for isolation.
2: Yeah. Some of them are set up like military academies, speaking Mm -hmm. of prisons. Um, So one of the things that Betsy DeVos insisted in her infamous interview was that – that public schools, where there are charter schools, public schools improve, and she cites competition <laughs> as the reason. And so, of course, she was at Leslie Stahl asked her, "Is that true in in this state that you're talking about, Florida?" But what about I think it was Michigan, okay. uh, your state where we are right now? And she's like, didn't have a clue whether that was true in Michigan. That now here we go so here it is free so your chicago article dreaming about a terrible disaster specifically looked forward to quote free market schools Mm -hmm. and here we have betsy devos the education whatever hoo-ha of (laughs) the united (laughs) states um who says uh well because competition like public Mm -hmm. like public schools are going to be embarrassed if I'm, imita- I'm imitating her, this is not a quote, but as if to say public schools are going to be embarrassed that they're not doing well, so they'll do better. Like they are already doing the best that they can with limited resources and nobody's Instagramming their triumph over a charter school seven blocks away. Like it's not, the, the competition, competition is not a human motivation. And for the people for who, who are only motivated by competition, there's something wrong with you.
1: Yeah, they're terrible people. They're terrible people. Competition's a magic word for these people, is what it is. They yeah. they use it to cover a multitude of sins and and
3: uh, and a whole host of of terrible um,
2: grabbyness. Ideas, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, the existence of this like free market solution for education really points to the paucity of how we talk about education in this country to begin with we we see education as this thing that gets siphoned off from the rest of society it's this thing that can happen that can exist that can be put onto uh these blank slates these automata you know the children who come to school ready to learn without any reference to the fact that often these children are not hung not going to school hungry or coming from poor housing situations or coming from uh you know low income circumstances And that comes with them into the school, and we can't begin to address the problems of education without addressing uh, the fundamental breakdown of public goods in the United States. And instead what they're doing is just installing another free market fix that's not a fix at all, that's actually exacerbating the situation, uh, that's making it much more difficult uh, for people to emerge from the context in which they live with any kind of autonomy or any kind of control over their circumstances or any kind of improvement in their lives
2: yeah I, I, I think our children are meat to these people mm-hmm. they just they need the ch- they need the bodies in the classroom in their seats to justify the money that they're making off of the system they don't need those children to be happy and healthy they don't need those children to excel they don't need those children to have a sense of personal agency they don't need those children to feel loved They just need, they're just meat in the seat to justify taking the money.
1: And the especially galling bit about that is that they're lying to you about it. Yeah. They will come out and tell you that these are public schools. They use public money, therefore they are public schools. While knowing full well that is not true, no public
2: accountability. Exactly,
1: and they'll tell you that while sending their children to private schools, where mm-hmm. those kids are going to be treated like princes and princesses, mm-hmm. and they and where those teachers will be told that, and I can say that having gone to one, where those teachers will be told that they can't, you know, offend their kids or that they can't go against their kids' beliefs. They will be told all of the things that we kind of wish were the case for every child in America, that we wish every kid had in school, that Mm -hmm. kind of care and attention. Their kids are getting it, and they're subjecting other people's children to a vastly lower standard. Yeah. And lying to all of us about it.
2: And that's what they want for Puerto Rico.
1: According to the Secretary of Education of Puerto Rico, that is exactly what they want. They want to use that. She's been going around to public schools in the last month, apparently, legitimately handing out surveys, asking how many of you know what a charter school is. Oh, well, you know, they're public schools, right? And it's it, the, the fact that this is a full frontal assault at this point on what remains of a public education system that was already severely strained mm-hmm. is at, at, at the Lowest point in the island's history dealing with, with this kind of disaster is, again, it, it re- it's a crime against humanity, is and, what it is. And yeah. it just
3: like with the electric grid in Puerto Rico, this is a project that goes back to before Maria, mm-hmm. and it was resisted. The unions put up a fight against the charter schools, Voter, voters put up a fight against... Uh, attempts to privatize the electric grid. People do not want these things, but the situation of Maria, the zone of exception created by the disaster, has opened up space for these ghouls uh, to now impose their will on people who are shocked, who are forced to, forced to leave the island in numbers yep. to just to live, mm-hmm. to find work, to find housing. Uh, so this is a circumstance where all their dreams can come true. Puerto Rico has been destroyed. It's a blank slate. Now we can color it on our own image. We can redo we can have another Milton Friedman's Dreamland. Caribbean edition.
2: You guys, this is <laughs> this has to be the lowest ending of any of our episodes. Like I'm really bummed out, but that mm-hmm. it's the reality. It's it's where we're they can where we all are.
3: be winners. Well, I'll I'll take my strength then from uh, the Puerto Rican Teachers Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're still putting up the good fight. Uh, I think we've all been inspired by the success of the West Virginia teachers union. We're seeing resistance from teachers in Oklahoma and Arizona, and I think we're going to see it as well. We, we are going to see it as well in Puerto Rico. Yeah, Hopefully,
1: and the Puerto know, Rican from teachers strong to seventy eight strong.
3: Yeah, here's here's hoping their fight is equally as successful. Uh, you know, fingers crossed. All solidarity to them. Absolutely, amen. Puerto Rico se levanta.